0: Section number 20 of Canada, the Empire of the North. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linda Marie Nielsen, Vancouver, B.C. Canada, the Empire of the North by Agnes C. Lott. From 1686 to 1698, Part 3 it was hardly to be expected that the new england colonies would let such raids pass unpunished the destruction of schenectady had been bad enough the massacre of salmon falls caused the new Englanders to forget their jealousies for once and to unite in a common cause all the colonies agreed to contribute men ships and money to invade new france by land and sea the Land forces were placed under Winthrop and Schuler, but as smallpox disorganized the expeditions before it reached Lake Champlain, the attack by land had little other effect than to draw Frontenac from Quebec down to Montreal, where Captain Schuler, with Dutch Bushmen, succeeded in ravaging the settlements and killing at least twenty French. The expedition by sea was placed under sir william phipps of massachusetts a man who was the very antipodes of frontenac one of a poor family of 26 children phipps had risen from being a shepherd boy in maine to the position of ship's carpenter in boston here among the harbor folk he got wind of a spanish treasure ship containing a million and a half dollars worth of gold Which had been sunk off the west indies going to england phipps succeeded in interesting that same clique of courtiers who had helped radisson to establish the hudson's bay company Abermile and prince rupert and the king and when with funds which they had advanced phipps succeeded in raising the treasure vessel he received in addition to his share of the booty a title and the appointment as governor of massachusetts here then was a daring leader chosen to invade new france phipps sailed first for port royal which had in late years become infested with french pirates preying on boston commerce word had just come from the fearful massacres of colonists at portland boston was inflamed with a spirit of vengeance The people had appointed days of fasting and prayer to invoke Heaven's blessing on their war. When Phipps sailed into Annapolis Basin with his vessels and seven hundred men in the month of May, he found the French commander Meneville ill of the gout, with garrison of about eighty soldiers, but all the cannon chanced to be dismounted. The odds against the French did not permit resistance meneville stipulated for an honorable surrender all property to be respected and the garrison to be sent to some french port but no sooner were the english in possession than like the french at portland they broke the pledge there was no massacre as in maine but plunderers ran riot seizing everything on which hands could be laid ransacking houses and desecrating the churches and sixty of the leading people including meneville and the priests were carried off as prisoners leaving one english flag flying phillips sailed home indignation at boston had been fanned to fury. for now all the details of the butchery at portland were known and Phipps found the colony mustering a monster expedition to attack the very stronghold of French power, Quebec itself. England could afford no aid to her colonies, but 32 merchant vessels and frigates had been impressed into the service, some of them carrying as many as 44 cannon. Artisans, sailors, soldiers, clerks, all classes had volunteered as fighters. To the number of twenty-five hundred men, but there was one thing lacking: they had no pilot who knew the Saint Lawrence. Full of confidence, born of inexperience, the fleet set sail on the ninth of August, commanded again by Phillips. Time was wasted ravaging the coasts of Gaspe, holding long-winded councils of war, arguing in the commander's stateroom instead of drilling on deck. Three more weeks were wasted poking about the lower St. Lawrence, picking up chance vessels off Tadoussac and Anticosti. Among the prize vessels taken near Anticosti was one of Joliet's, bearing his wife and mother-in-law. The ladies delighted the hearts of the Puritans by the news that not more than one hundred men garrisoned Quebec, but Phipps was reckoning without his host, and his host was Frontenac, Besides, it was late in the season, the middle of October, before the English fleet rounded the island of Orleans and faced the citadel of Quebec. Indians had carried word to the city that an Englishwoman, taken prisoner in their raids, had told him more than thirty vessels had sailed from Boston to invade New France. Frontenac was absent in Montreal. Quickly the commander at Quebec sent couriers with warning to frontenac and then set about casting up barricades in the narrow streets that led from lower to upper town frontenac could not credit the news he had not heard here in montreal from indian couriers how the english overland expedition lay rotting of smallpox near lake champlain such pitiable objects that the iroquois refused to join them against the french new France now numbered a population of 12,000 and could muster 3,000 fighting men, and though the English colonies numbered 20,000 people, how could they, divided by jealousies, send an invading army of 2,700, as the rumor stated? Frontenac, grizzled old warrior, did not credit the news, but all the same he set out amid pelting rains by boat for Quebec. Halfway to Three Rivers, more messengers brought him word that the English fleet were now advancing from Tadoussac. He sent back orders for the commander and Montreal to rush the bushrovers down to Quebec, and he himself arrived at the Citadel just as Le Moy brothers anchored below Cape Diamond from a voyage to Hudson Bay. Miracourt Le Moy reported how he had escaped past the English fleet by night, and it would certainly be at Quebec by daybreak. Scouts rallied the bushrangers on both sides of the St. Lawrence to Quebec's aid. Frontenac bade them guard the outposts and not desert their hamlets, while St. Helene and the other Le took command of the sharpshooters in Lower Town, scattering them in hiding. Along the banks of the st Charles and among the houses facing the st Lawrence below Castle st Louis. Sure enough, at daybreak on Monday, October sixteenth, sail after sail, thirty-four in all, rounded the end of Orleans Island and took up position directly opposite Quebec City. It was a cold, wet autumn morning fog and rain alternately chased in gray shadows across the far hills and above the mists of the river loomed ominous the red-gray fort which the english had come to capture castle st louis stood where chateau frontenac stands to-day and what is now the promenade of a magnificent terrace was at that time a breastwork of cannon extending on down the sloping hill to the left as far as the ramparts in fact the cannon of that period were more dangerous than they are today for long-range missiles have rendered old time fortifications adapt for close range fighting almost useless and the cannon of upper town Quebec that October morning swept the approach to three sides of the fort facing the st. Charles opposite point levis and the st lawrence where it curves back on itself and the fourth side was sheer wall invulnerable with a rattling of anchor chains and a creaking of masts the great sails of the english fleet were lowered and a little boat put out at ten o'clock under flag of truce to meet a boat half-way from lower town phipps messenger was conducted blindfold up the barricaded streets leading to castle st louis and the gunners have been instructed to clang their muskets on the stones to give the impression of great numbers suddenly the bandage was taken from the man's eyes and he found himself in a great hall standing before the august presence of frontenac surrounded by a circle of magnificently dressed officers the new englander delivered his message phipps letter demanding surrender your prisoners your persons your estates and should you refuse i am resolved by the help of god in whom i trust to revenge by force of arms all wrongs as the reading of the letter was finished the man looked up to see an insolent smile pass round the faces of Frontenac's officers, one of whom superstitiously advised hanging the bearer of such insolence without waste of time. The New Englander pulled out his watch and signalled that he must have Frontenac's answer within an hour. The haughty old governor pretended not to see the motion, and then, with a smile like ice made answer in words that have become renowned i shall not keep you waiting so long tell your general i do not recognize king william i know no king of england but king james does your general suppose that these brave gentlemen pointing to his officers will consent to trust a man who broke his word at port royal as the shout of applause died away the trembling new englander asked frontenac If he would put his answer in writing no thundered the old governor never happier than when fighting I will answer your general with my cannon I shall teach him that a man of my rank with a covert sneer at Phipps origin is not to be summoned in such rude fashion let him do his best I shall do mine it was now the turn of the English to be amazed This was not the answer they had expected from a fort weakly garrisoned by a hundred men. If they had struck and struck quickly, they might yet have won the day. But all Monday passed in futile arguments and councils of war, and on Tuesday the 17th, towards night, was heard wild shouting within Quebec walls. My faith, messieurs, exclaimed one of the French prisoners aboard Phipps' ship, now you have lost your chance. Those are the couriers de bois from Montreal and the bushrovers of the Pays de Hote 800 strong. The news at last spurred Phipps to action. All that night the people of Quebec could hear the English drilling and shouting, God save King William, with beat of drum and trumpet calls that set the echoes rolling from cape diamond and on the eighteenth small boats landed fourteen hundred men to cross the st charles river and assault the lower town while the four largest ships took up position to cannonade the city it was four in the afternoon before the soldiers had been landed among peppering bullets from the lamoy bushrovers only a few cannon shots were fired, and they did not damage but to kill an urchin of the upper town. Firing began in earnest on the morning of October nineteenth. The river was churned to fury, and the reverberating echoes set the rocks crashing from Cape Diamond. But it was almost impossible for the English to shoot high enough to damage the upper fort. It was easy for the French to shoot down. And great wounds gaped from the hull of phipp's ship while his mass went over decks in flame flag and all the tide drifted the admiral's flag on shore the french rowed out secured the prize and jubilant shout roared from lower town to be taken up and echoed and re-echoed from the castle for two more days bombs roared in mid-air plunging through the roofs of houses in lower town or ricocheting back harmless from the rock wall below castle st louis at the st charles the land forces were fighting blindly to effect a crossing but the lemoy bushrovers lying in ambush repelled every advance though st helen had fallen mortally wounded On the morning of the 21st the French could hardly believe their senses the land forces had vanished during the darkness of a rainy night and ship after ship sail after sail was drifting downstream was it possible in retreat another week's bombarding would have reduced Quebec to flame and starvation But another week would have exposed Phipps' fleet to wreckage from winter weather, and he had drifted down to Isle Orleans, where the dismantled fleet paused to rig up fresh masts. It was Madame Joliet who suggested to the Puritan commander in exchange of the prisoners captured at Port Royal, with the English from Maine and New Hampshire held in Quebec. She was sent ashore by Phipps, and the exchange was arranged. Winter gales assailed the English fleet as it passed Anticosti, and what with the wrecked and wounded Phipps' loss totaled not less than a thousand men. Frontenac had been back in Canada only a year, and in that time he had restored the prestige of French power in America. The Iroquois were glad to sue for peace, and his bitterness enemies, the Jesuits joined the merrymakers round the bonfires of acclaim kindled in the old governor's honor as the English retreated, and the joy bells pealed out, and the procession surged, shouting through the streets of Quebec, from Hudson Bay to the Mississippi, from the St. Lawrence to Lake Superior, and the land of the Sioux. French power reigned supreme only port nelson high up on the west coast of hudson bay remained subdued draining the furs of the prairie tribes to england away from quebec iberville had captured it in the fall of sixteen ninety four at the cost of his brother Chateauguay's life but when iberville departed from hudson bay english men-of-war had come out in sixteen ninety six and wrestled back this most valuable of all the fur posts it was now determined to drive the english forever from hudson bay lamoy de iberville was chosen for the task april sixteen ninety seven seigneur Moy was dispatched from france with five men-of-war to be placed under the command of iberville at placentia newfoundland whence he was to proceed to hudson bay and to leave not a vestige of the english in the north the frigates left newfoundland july 8th three weeks later they were rushing through the ice-jam of hudson straits iberville commanded the pelican with two hundred and fifty men bienneville a brother was on the same ship sagnier commanded the palmier and there were three other frigates the profound the violent the wasp ice locked round the fleet at the west end of hudson straits and fog lay so thick there was nothing visible of any ship but the masthead for eighteen days they lay crunched and rammed and separated by the ice drive till august 25th early in the morning the fog suddenly lifted Iberville saw that Sargony's ship had been carried back in the straits. The wasp and violent were not to be seen, but straight ahead, locked in ice, stood the profound, and beside the French vessel, three English frigates, the Hampshire, the Deering, the Hudson Bay, on their annual voyage to Nelson. A lane of water opened before Iberville. Like a bird, the pelican spread her wings to the wind and fled. September 3rd, Iberville sighted Port Nelson, and for two days cruised the offing, scanning the sea for the rest of his fleet. Early on September 5th, the sails of three vessels heaved and rose above the watery horizon. Never doubting these were his own ships, Iberville signaled. There was no answer. A sailor scrambled to the masthead and shouted down, terrified warning. These were not the French ships these were the english frigates bearing straight down on the single french vessel commanded by iberville on one side was the enemy's fort on the other the enemy's fleet coming over the waves before a clipping wind all sails set of iberville's crew forty men were ill of scurvy twenty-five had gone ashore to reconnoitre he had left one hundred and fifty fighting men amid a rush of orders Ropes were strewn across decks for handhold, cannon was unplugged, and the battery men below decks stripped themselves for the hot work ahead. The soldiers assembled on decks, sword in hand, and the Canadian bushrovers stood to the fore, ready to leap across the enemy's decks. By nine in the morning the ships were abreast, and roaring cannonades from the English cut the decks of the pelican to kindling wood, and set the mass in flame. At the same instant one fell blast of musketry mowed down forty French, but Iberville's battery-man below decks had now ceased to pour a stream of fire into the English hulls. The odds were three to one, and for four hours the battle raged, the English shifting and shearing to lock in death grapple iberville's sharpshooters peppering the decks of the foe it had turned bitterly cold the blood on the decks became ice and each roll of the sea sent wounded and dead weltering from rail to rail such holes had been torn in the hulls of both england and french ships that the gunners below decks were literally looking into each other's smoke-grim faces suddenly all hands paused A frantic scream cleft the air. The vessels were careening in attempt to a sea, for the great ship Hampshire had refused to answer to the wheel, had lurched, had sunk, sunk swift as lead among hiss of flames in the roaring sea. Not a soul of her two hundred and fifty men escaped. The frigate Hudson's Bay surrendered, and the Deering fled. Iberville was the victor but a storm now broke in hurricane gusts over the sea iberville steered for land but the waves drenched the wheel at every wash and driving before the storm the pelican floundered in the sands a few miles from nelson all lifeboats had been shot away in such a sea the canadian canoes were useless the shattered masts were tied in four-sided racks to these iberville had the wounded bound and the crew plunged for the shore eighteen men perished going ashore in the darkness on land were two feet of snow no sooner did the french castaways build fires to warm their benumbered limbs than bullets whistled into camp governor bailey of port nelson had sent out his sharpshooters luckily iberville's other ships now joined him and mustering his forces the dauntless french leader marched against the fort storm had permitted the french to land their cannon undetected trenches were cast up and three times Le lemoy was set to demand surrender the french are desperate he urged they must take the fort or perish of want and if you continue the fight there will be no mercy given the hudson's bay people capulated and were permitted to march out with arms bag and baggage an english ship carried the refugees home to the thames the rest of iberville's career is the story of colonizing the mississippi he was granted a vast signory on the bay of chaleur and in 1699 given a title On his way from the Louisiana colony to France, his ship had paused at Havana. Here Iberville contracted yellow fever and died, while yet in the prime of his manhood, July ninth, 1706. After the victory on Hudson Bay, the French were supreme in America and Frontenac supreme in New France. The old white-haired veteran of a hundred wars became the idol of Quebec friends and enemies jesuits and recollects paid tribute to his worth in november of 1698 the governor passed from this life in castle st louis at the good old age of seventy eight he had demonstrated demonstrated in action so that his enemies acknowledged the fact that the sterner virtues of the military chieftain go farther towards the making of a great nationhood off sediments and religious emotionalism. End of section twenty. Recording by Linda Marie Nielsen, Vancouver, B.C.